Hi, this is Dave Kersner, and you're listening to Michael's Record Collection. Hello, and welcome to Michael's Record Collection, where we talk about great music with the people who make it and the people who love it. This is episode number 125, and I'm your host, Michael Citro. My guest for this episode is Dave Kersner. You might know him from Sound of Contact, In Continuum. Uh, he is a solo artist. He used to play with Kevin Gilbert's band, a uh, talented guy, and he's got a new album out, came out October 18th, called Heartland Minds Volume 1, uh, which, of course, begs the question, how many volumes will there be? Well, Dave gets into that in this uh, interview. Heartland Minds Volume 1 is a fantastic album. It's very acoustic guitar driven. A lot of this music was originally written back in the 90s when Dave was out in Los Angeles trying to make it in the music industry, met a girl, they got together, they had a bad breakup, and uh, he drove across the country with his acoustic guitar trying to think of what his next steps were, where you know he was trying to find himself, as, as they say. It took a long time to get this thing made, and Dave gets into why. It's really Floydy, and it pulls from a lot of classic rock influences. Before we get to that Dave Kersner interview, I want to remind you to go to michaelsrecordcollection.com. That's my website, and there are links there to everything, including how to sign up for my free newsletter. There's a link there to the Patreon, where you can find out for as little as $2 a month all of the extra value you would get for supporting this independent show. Of course, there are links there to all my social media accounts, including at Mike's Records on Twitter and Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok, although I hardly ever TikTok. I'd love to hear from you, so drop me a line at michaelsrecordcollection at gmail.com. Let me know what's on your mind. Tell me where in the world you're listening from. Love to get your feedback. All right, without any further ado, let's get to that interview with Dave Kersner. Here we go. I'm very excited to welcome back to the program... Dave Kersner, you uh, you may remember he I had him on to talk about the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Now we're here to talk about his brand new album, Heart Landmines Volume One. And uh, Dave, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Michael. Good to be back. So very excited about this release. You uh, you just came out with October eighteenth, Heart Landmines Volume One, and this is a little bit of an autobiographical uh, concept album about uh, you leaving Los Angeles. In the 1990s, after a bit of a breakup and driving across country, uh, you had your guitar, you had time to think, you had time to write songs, weren't really maybe necessarily sure what was next for you. Tell me a little bit about that time that led to this record. Well, it was um, <clears throat> it was an exciting time, actually, but uh, and there was a lot going on. But at that particular, like the impetus for the whole, you know, the breakup and the drive and then, you know, the ongoing for years uh writing uh started with so i was playing with an artist named kevin gilbert who we've talked about i know you know and we did the lamb lies down on broadway at Prague fest in 1994 and he lived in i lived with him in eagle rock he had a studio in pasadena and um at uh so we played when we played live at the troubadour a friend of mine uh, well, now a friend now, uh, but someone I didn't know then brought a date to the show and I didn't know. And I had like recognized her before. Like we both were like, have we met before? You know, that kind of thing. And it really was true. We had met when I first moved to L.A. in 1989. So this was like 95, I think, when we did Live at the Troubadour. So um, 
the, or 94, somewhere in there. And uh, in 89, I moved to L.A. and I stayed with a family friend in, in Malibu, which was like, you know, uh, I tried to stay there forever. They're like, OK, you need, you need to go get your own place now. Uh, but it was like on the cliff. It was incredible. They, they bought it like in the 70s but when it was nothing. It was pretty amazing. Anyway, so the the daughter of my dad's friend, um, like the first day I was there, we had to go pick up a girl who was in distress from the airport who had just gotten out of a crazy breakup and she was, and this was Genevieve, the character in my, in my album. So I did, you know, I was, and I asked the, the girl, uh, the daughter of my friend, I said, so what's the deal with this? And she's like, don't, you don't even want, just trust me. And I thought she was just, you know, like jealous or something, or, you know, maybe she liked me. I didn't know what the deal was. It's like, well, you know, I, I, but I didn't. I actually didn't. I was like, oh, all right, you know, because it is a weird situation. So then you flash forward years later, she she's at my show backstage. And I'm like, you look familiar. And then we went to this party the next day with a bunch of people from Madonna's band and all this stuff. There's so much going on in L.A. And I'm like, I know what it was. We met at this thing. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. And then we kind of hit it off and and then started dating. But she was very unusual very fast you know kind of like all right look um if you want to you know go out and everything i need to know if you're open to marriage <laughs> right <laughs> and i'm like not like do you want to get married but like are you open to it because i don't want to waste my time yeah and i'm like oh okay and i was at 25 i wasn't really thinking about that but i was like i mean i'm open you know and i, I kind of i didn't want to ruin the the vibe of this like you're the one you know and and all this you know, high hope stuff that she was building up anyway. And I was playing with Kevin and she was a lot like Cheryl Crow. She, and he, that was his girlfriend. And she kind of left him in the dust. I mean, there's two sides to that story, but from his perspective, it was kind of like, Oh, you know, used in the, in the industry, you know, typical uh, LA kind of story there. And she was very similar in style look even. I mean, and so Kevin was sort of warning me and is, you know, saying, dude, like, this looks like another Cheryl, another Miss Broadway. And because there's that's another thing. But anyway, uh, of course, I ignored his advice. And I talk about that in the music. I'm actually talking about Kevin and other friends, like the, the girl I mentioned, um, and went for it. And I moved. I live with Kevin so uh, as a roommate. So I, I moved in with her in Santa Monica near the beach at her apartment. Put my gear in storage. and um, And then... When I was working with her music, and at the time it was really weird, I was having some issues with Kevin, you know, being in Pasadena and some things that, you know, weren't cool in my book. But in retrospect, I should have just, you know, to work with Kevin was a privilege. So I, I just was, you know, but it was like between that and then in Northridge, I was a member for two seconds of the band The Eels with E. And I couldn't do all three. I was like overwhelmed. You know, so I, I lost the gig with the Eels and I kind of like temporarily, I thought temporarily kind of had a hiatus with Kevin and was actually later going to get back together with him and talk and stuff. And then he died. But that's a separate subject. But with, with Jenna, um, she started to get interest from a record label, was flirting with the A&R guy and kind of backpedaled from the whole marriage thing. She became my fiance. I ended up asking her, man. But it was more like pushed to do it. She was like hinting with ring pictures of rings and all sorts of stuff. And I was like, 
all right, I mean, you know, I don't want to ruin this. And then she just pulled the rug out from underneath and kind of like, you know, you know, like, thank you for helping me with my music, but I'm moving to the next level now. So goodbye. And I was totally thrown. And of course, you know, I was like a fish out of water because I, I, I um, moved into her place. So I had no place to live homeless, technically homeless. Mm -hmm. So I was like, you know, for the breakup. And I was like, mm -hmm. well, I have friends. I could have stayed with friends or I could have stayed at a hotel until I got a place and all that stuff. So it wasn't like I was destitute. Um, Kevin and I used to score uh, television together. So I was actually doing well at the time financially. And I could take a sabbatical. I could take a break and just be like, all right, let me just, you know what? I'm just going to get in the car, grab a guitar, set up a keyboard. I'm mainly a keyboard player, but you can't really bring a Mellotron on the road. Uh, <laughs> you know, so I brought this cool guitar from the 60s a dan electro uh with like a kitchen top finish you know it's a funny little acoustic electric guitar and like a suitcase and just drove without a plan except the only plan would be you know step out and see some nature and play guitar and write songs okay so this is your it's your fourth fourth solo album following the traveler came out last year it's interesting the album is something that you've worked on and set aside and come back to on and off since the nineties. Um, what was the impetus for getting it finished now? Or did it just take that long to kind of wrap your, wrap your head around it? Well, to be honest, um, you know, a lot of the, I've been writing music since I was 13, 12, you know, like, and the music was always, pretty good even if i go back and i've, I've used bits and pieces from tra uh, music that i've written from back then in fact one song on the new album called back to one the origins were 1988 87 you know um but going back even further than that so but the lyrics were not my forte and they were seemed like a chore back then because you just were so quick with the music and you're like oh what can we do and then i knew it was just like man this is cheesy or this, this this is just you know and when i worked with kevin that really changed things because he was an amazing lyricist one of the best oh yeah and he set the bar here and i was like so the bar was already higher than i was and then he was like all right you know what but he also taught me that to write lyrics is an opportunity to be creative and poetic and, and clever or whatever, funny, you know, all those things and not just be some random, you don't even know what they're singing about, like stuff that maybe would sound like they were high and they just came up with, you know, uh, the, you know, some of the bands that we like, actually, some of the lyrics are a little, little obscure, a little bit like, you know, that was actually an opportunity to really, you know, move you. And they just kind of rhymed some stuff and it was whatever, some cases. Actually, my favorite example of that is America's Horse with No Name. I love that song. But, you know, they use they, it's redundant. They say the word desert. You could have a drinking game with the word desert. And it's like that song. Could, I, I, if I wrote that song, I was co-writing that song. I'd make it about something that you could you know, make you cry. You know, like like a horse with no name is like, let's say, a guy who helped people get across the border and no one knew his name, but he helped countless families or something like that. And then he died like the giving tree. He was just used and left behind. Anyway, so I, I saw it that way probably around the time I worked with Kevin onward. But it takes time to to get to exercise your brain and to and the confidence and to be able to especially to sing those lyrics because for a, a period of time 
I wrote these songs and tried out different singers. And and actually some of the song the demos with those singers are on the deluxe edition of Heartland Minds Volume One. I was just compiling that and it's cool. It's interesting to hear like the development. I was like, well, let me see if I can get other singers to do it. And it's such a personal album that it really felt like I had to do it. This is the real story, by the way. I haven't told this story yet. So I had all these songs. I wasn't happy with the lyrics yet. I wasn't sure if I could get someone else to sing my personal songs, but I wasn't a lead singer yet in my mind. I was like the Tony Banks guy or the Richard Wright, you know, the keyboard player behind the scenes, maybe doing an odd vocal here and there, backing vocals. And then when Sound of Contact happened in 2010, you know, I really had a big hand in that, um, even singing, but still backing vocals. Um, and but a lot of writing and a lot of production. I just really sunk my teeth into that creatively. And it was so well received. And then coupled with it being a little out of my control that, that the band kind of split up and, and stuff. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to be the front man. That's the only way to do it. And I did my debut album in 2014 and I sang lead and, and everything changed. Everything changed. But you know, I had kind of built off of this progressive rock style that I had been part of with Sound of Contact and expanded from there. But lots of, you know, keyboard solos and, and you know, things influenced by Genesis and, and Yes and mm -hmm. uh, others. And I still had this album unfinished. And I knew at some point I had to kind of like sink my teeth into it. So anyway, long story short, the interesting thing that happened was, I don't know how many years ago, but like, you know, I'm in my 50s now. Um, and so I went through somewhat of a midlife crisis. I'm over it now. But uh, where I was dating younger women and thinking I was younger than I really am, you know, that whole thing. And that some people go through, especially rock musicians. We think we're just kids forever, you know. And uh, I was doing this driving footage for which we showed in, on the screen behind us in the uh, Prog Stock show. And it'll be on the Blu-ray concert video and, and also part of the, the visuals for the album itself, music videos and whatnot. And we, I went with Eric Nielsen, a um, friend of mine who does videos with me and others, and we just shot. 360 video of cross country stuff right and i was i was in arc of life i just joined arc of life with the members of members of yes like mm -hmm. billy sherwood john davison jay shallon and jimmy hahn and they asked me to join the band and we were doing a photo shoot actually that time stamps it right there so it was like 2018 2019 and uh and the girlfriend that i had who was much younger than me broke up with me while i was on the road in a much less dramatic way and probably rightfully so because I was too old for her and I was dreaming that I was younger than I was, you know? So it was just kind of, but it hurt, still hurt. And, sure. uh, I was like, Oh, I'm like, damn. Like, <laughs> uh, then I thought, wow, what a trip that I actually like opened Pandora's box to go back in time to relive, you know, so I was listening to the album and, and writing while we're driving or, you know, tweaking and thinking that, of, the album and then here i am that feeling of of being dumped or you know like things not working out uh and you know the sadness of it and i was like well it's almost a good thing it's almost as an artist it's a good thing as a human it's like oh why 
it was one of those things, and this is a classic thing for me, and it's changed finally. Now I've I've learned in my current relationship is fantastic, but like I've always ignored the warning signs, gone for the pretty girl, regardless of how unstable this situation or or her, you know, it, it's not even always the person. It can be the situation. Like, let's say, you know, someone is way older. I mean, my mom, her husband was 20 years older, so it can't, but he's dead now. So it's like, it can happen, but it's not ideal. And there's, there's some things that, you know, and of course, the vulnerability of well, like, don't fall, like, if you want to have fun, you want to go out, whatever, but like, you fall in love and it's not stable and then it, it, the rug gets pulled out from underneath. Don't go crying. You know, I mean, when it doesn't work out, it's like into the sun. That's what that's about. So mm-hmm. uh, it, once again, I, I was in that situation. But what happened, and it's kind of trippy because, sorry, it's a long answer, but this is the, right. the <laughs> real. Um, I, it was a meta situation where I started to write new songs about midlife crisis and about going through it again and what it's like to have like relived the the story and the songs as a songwriter. Now I'm writing songs about me as a songwriter. So like, for instance, the opening track on this album, true story says wrote an album that no one's ever heard. So I'm actually writing about the album is me writing about writing the album. Okay. So this is, this is a song about you're listening to the album starts with a song about you writing this particular album. Yes. I was going to ask you that. So I'm I'm glad you got to that. Took a trip back to 1995 Relived those feelings and I made it out alive Wrote an album no one's ever heard Based upon the truth in every word So it's it's the next album, the volume two, you get more into the now, not now, now, but like into the late 40s, early 50s me mm-hmm. and writing the album. It's, it's about me writing the album and going through the same experiences and realizing I haven't learned shit, you know, <laughs> and, you know, about like, you know, what, how to protect yourself. I mean, if there even is a way, I guess maybe don't just know what you're getting into or don't don't go for it if you see the warning signs unless you're prepared for some heartache and you know while it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand if you don't live and love and lose you know as sinatra said you know you're not you don't you have nothing to write about when it comes to that stuff so i have lots to write about uh but it is painful and i actually prefer a peaceful, harmonious relationship, which is what I have now, ironically. And, and it just took me, you know, 50 something years to get there. (laughs) Well, you know, better late than never, as they say. So I was going to ask you that, uh, you know, the fact that this is labeled volume one, obviously begs the question, how many volumes do you just see it as a two volume uh, piece? You know, that's an interesting question uh, that I've still don't know the answer to because on the one hand, if it's based on so ninety percent of the songs that you hear on this record, like with the exception of the song "True Story" and 
bits of Eye of the Storm and bits of songs, uh, like The Bridge of Dirty Girl. Those were written now, but most of the music itself was written in the 90s. Uh, and then the lyrics, some of them were kept from then, and then some of them, and you can hear it in the demos on the, I put a lot of demos on the box set, uh, if for those who have that, um, were changed and fixed now. So that's very like, okay, I can write lyrics now much better than I could when I was in my 20s. So let's fix these and, and convey what I really want to say and keep it poetic and melodic and all that stuff. So the volume two, I have enough material from the 90s basically to build two more volumes if it's if it's done that way. Um, however, there's some material that's been written along the way that uh fits with it as well that i've done with marco miniman and nick di virgilio and, and some of the other people i work with today so because this album actually and, and and some of the other volumes have tracks not only just songs that were written but actual tracks that were recorded with guys like lyle workman uh who plays with who played with jellyfish and back in sting mm -hmm. um good friend of mine and uh in la and and he also played with kevin um Mark McCrite, um, a bunch of people, Toss Panos, who played with Kevin, played with Thud before um, Nick Virgilio. So I actually had the ADAT, there's something called an ADAT, which was a, a digital recorder that used VHS tapes. I still have all those, which I'm, I'm just crazy, like hoarding all these, because I have my old four-track cassettes still. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I transferred them over. So it's, it's a real, ironically, that the previous album, The Traveler, was about time travel in a sci-fi kind of way almost at least you know had a layer of sci-fi this has no layer of sci-fi it's just literally time travel with recordings and songs and me collaborating with my younger self in a sense yeah. which is really trippy in a different way um but anyway long story short uh, i think uh it could go one of two ways it'll it'll either be two volumes three volumes or maybe an ongoing series because I kind of feel like the style, it's an eclectic style. It embraces some prog rock, but probably more within, I would say more accurately, within the context of classic rock, like how progressive rock can be played on a classic rock radio station. So sometimes you'll hear some Genesis or you'll hear some Pink Floyd, but then you'll hear Eagles, CSNY, uh, you know, Bruce Springsteen, or, you know, all these other, bad company, I mean, like all these other Zeppelin great classic rock mm. and i love classic rock i mean and if you think about it prog rock has had a revival but classic rock actually hasn't really had a revival i mean you're you're lucky to hear something that reminds you of of led zeppelin or the who or you know these days um so um i have that side to me you know i have the tony banks rick wakeman keyboard influence side which i love that's my natural habitat uh but i have this other side where i write mostly on guitar or piano and and fuse in all these other influences of music i, I like and grew up with but especially in this series with the kind of like road trip music vibe to it like america or 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 simon garfunkel or you know bob dylan or you know all that it's kind of like um steely dan like music like if you were going on a road trip you're like all right let's listen to the entire steely dan <laughs> albums from gaucho at least up to gaucho mm -hmm. and, uh so 
it's like a, an avenue without creating a whole new band with another style to say, you know what? Here's my if if it's under this label. I mean, this is just an idea. It's not a. I'm not committed to it. But like, volume ten. You know, it's like, uh, you know, it's okay. It's it's that style. Meanwhile, I can carry on doing another album that has lots of keyboards and whatever. Still, whether it's in continuum or solo album, and you know, surprise people with something different. Right. But like this ongoing thing, because the road trip itself and life is a journey, and it just to me, it poetically, it's like. Maybe I will do that. I don't know. I know all I know is this. Everything I do is based on having material, for better or worse. Uh, I wouldn't mind starting an album fresh without material, but I never do it. It's always like, oh, I've got this material. Let's make an album with it. Whether it's even a new band, like In Continuum only exists because I had the material. I wouldn't have done it if I didn't have the material. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously, Arc of Life was different, but I, don't, I have zero writing with that band. So I'm just kind of like, you know, the keyboard player and I would write, but it's up to them if they were like, well, please write for the band or let's write together. So I've otherwise I've got like hundreds of songs and song ideas waiting to be finished. Right. And so, so that you, so you could see this as an ongoing series of this style of music that you particularly like. That's the short answer. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I that. Okay. Okay. What was the idea behind the, the releasing of the I EP? Just was it just as a teaser to get some of that stuff out there? It's more than a teaser because it is full length songs. Um, but I have a philosophy. It's a little out of the norm, but it makes a lot of sense. All, especially in the wake of of some of the recent uh, announcements from companies like Spotify, where they're mm. diminishing niche genre artists' uh, royalties. Like you want, you have to hit now. You have to hit a threshold of a certain number of streams before they'll pay you at all. At all. Yeah, I mean, it's, it was bad. It was bad enough that they they pay a fraction of a penny per stream. So. It's long and short of it. I could really go on, but I will just do the short version. For those who don't know, the streaming services, especially Spotify, but other ones, all pay very, very low royalty rates because it's per stream. And that means that niche genre artists like prog artists and bands uh, and other styles, jazz and other, um, that aren't mass popular, like critical mass, like millions of streams. Right, like a Taylor Swift. Yeah, like Taylor Swift 
don't make money. And even they don't make as much money, but it adds up. Once it, the critical mass is like when it's just like when you have 5 million, it becomes 10 million. When you have a, a billion, it becomes 2 billion because all it takes is one person to tell one person and then it just gets out of hand, which is great for them. But it rewards only the super, super, super popular artists only. And the niche get swept under the rug like it doesn't matter. Whereas the previous model, which still exists, but it's been kind of competitive with this for people of buying the album, let's say on iTunes or Bandcamp or the CD, of course, but in vinyl. But let's just say digitally, uh, since that's a thing now, you know, we listen to music on our phones and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't matter because you got, you know, like if your album sold on for $10 on iTunes, the label or you, if you're the label, got $7, 30, 70% of it. And so, even if you sold, let's say, a thousand of those, that's seven thousand dollars. It's not a fortune, but it might pay for your album to be made and to, you know, justify it financially as a business. Well, that same amount of people listening to the album, like the normal amount of times that someone might listen to an album, would come out to like fifty bucks, maybe, or something like that, or worse. And that is drastic. Anyway, long story short, I uh, have a theory. A philosophy i've tried it on my previous album and i've tried it on this album which is that artists like me and you know other artists uh, in niche genres indie artists should experiment by not putting the entire album on the streaming services don't give away the farm let people you know hear some of it and if they like it really like it maybe they'll buy the album they're not gonna maybe they're probably not gonna buy the album if the whole album's there for free i mean you can't blame them because money's tight and this and that. But mm-hmm. the thing is, is whether people realize or not, um, and a, a lot of prog fans do realize this, um, you got to support the artists that you like so that they can afford to continue. So buying their merch, going to their shows, buying their album on CD or buying their downloads is really important. It's more important, way more important, crucial in that world than, let's say, a huge artist where it's just like, okay, you're a little blip. It's like, you know, but if you're one of a thousand people or two thousand people versus one of a million people that buys a, millions of people that buy a Taylor Swift album, or whatever, you're way more important than you think, you know, in terms of like, should I buy it or should I just listen to it for free? So as an artist, I kind of, you know, make the statement of like, well, I don't want to completely not ignore. I could boycott, you know, and I, I actually recommend people as listeners boycott spotify after this latest move and just just go to apple or amazon or something else because that's just it was bad and now it's just too far they're so disrespectful and if you're a prog fan or a niche indie rock fan don't give them your money you know like it's 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 in the pot we all have to do something as much as we can so as an artist what i do is i don't put the full album there some artists aren't there at all but you actually hurt your fans and yourself as an artist if you're not there at all because there are people it's a catch-22 but either way that's my experiment put like an ep there and a full album for purchase other places mm-hmm. and, you know i think it works <laughs> well, i hope it does work for you you're, you're absolutely right i, I switched to title uh, about a year and a half two years ago whenever that joe rogan thing came out like they're giving him millions and millions of dollars but so many people are just not even getting paid so uh, that was kind of the last straw for me Good for you. 
cars and envy, spinning wheels and brakes. Tommy got a six string, Sheila got a G string. Money, fame, and a pipe dream, whatever it takes. All for 15 minutes, the flavor of the week. Tommy became a rocker, Sheila became a freak. When they finally met, there were sparks in the air. A chance to hit the big time and do it as a pair. Don't want to be waiting for fortune and fame. Don't want to be bound by the rules of the game. Don't want to be a poser with a name. So uh, this new album, it sounds at times very Floydy uh, to me, and, and and what the surprise to me was also that I know you as a keyboard player. So it, it, there's so much of this that is guitar driven, acoustic guitar driven. Do you tend to write your music on the guitar, or does it depend on what uh, sort of genre you're you're working in? Uh, like I said, I, I don't uh, I don't pick a genre. The songs dictate to me what genre, how to produce it and, and arrange and all that stuff. But in terms of starting a song, and most of the time when I start a song, I don't even know that I'm starting a song. I'm, I'm just messing around mm. on a guitar or a piano or a keyboard. And then something kind of sparks. I'm like, oh, that's cool. It's, you know, and, then, and then I start to think about what is that? Where should that go? What does that make me think of? I like it. And, you know, so I sing along and maybe record it in a voice recorder um, and then turn it into a song. So it could be either. The only thing is, is, you know, there's there's two different approaches, uh, but I always approach songs from the music first and then the lyrics. Uh, I might have a concept maybe in mind and then write a song, but it's usually the concept come to me. Or the situation, like let's say I'm driving cross country and already I know that I'm driving, I'm writing about my situation and stuff I went through. But, uh, but still, that situation is a good example of one of the differences between that I mentioned between a keyboard and guitar is guitar is very portable. I mean, you can just grab it and go on a couch. You know, as a keyboard player or pianist, you have to go to the piano. That's not going anywhere, you know. And you could take little keyboards and stuff portable, but. I like to write on full size piano or electric piano, like a Rhodes or a Wurlitzer mm -hmm. and, uh, or a guitar. That's just, you know, I don't really write on little keyboards. I can do parts and I can, you know, I have those. I, mean, I, I work with a company that makes those, uh, IK multimedia. Uh, so they're useful, but I don't actually write on like a little keyboard. So anyway, what I was going to say is one of the differences between keyboards and guitar for me is on the piano that you know, I, I studied music and, I know what I'm doing. I mean, not a hundred percent. I take stabs at things and then would have to think about what chord that is that I just played. But more or less, I, I kind of know what's going on it, linear across the keyboard. Guitar isn't linear. It's it's like six linear keyboards to me. Mm -hmm. So I get lost, you know, because each string, you know, has its own chromatic scale. 
and then they're layered into a keyboard player. That's just like, wait, well, what? What's good? You just scrambled my keyboard. It's like having, it's almost like if you had six keyboards stacked and each one of them was in a different position. <laughs> I mean, you know, so, I mean, you could actually, even that I would, could play easier than I could play guitar. But so, but the, there's a benefit to a keyboard player that it's, it's not easily recognizable. Um, you do things that you might not otherwise do. I take stabs at doing chords and some of the chords I do, guitar players go, what, what is that? <laughs> like, that's play that chord. I'm like, that's how I play that chord. <laughs> that's and, not a, that's not know, a thing. <laughs> I, and the funny thing is, is the song doesn't sound right unless you do that weird voicing. So I make up my own voicings a lot of times or I tune the guitar to something else. Mm-hmm. You know, usually an open D or C or something. But, um, and then, but I do regular tuning. So anyway, it, I get excited about stuff. And even myself, I'll be like, oh, those two chords sound great. And then I go to the keyboard to see what they actually are. And I'm like, oh, that's just a major seventh. That's not that big a deal. Mm-hmm. But it's like, it's a good thing. I don't, I shouldn't know. Let me just free my mind up to listen and not think about what chord it is or what you should do here, music theory or anything. Mm-hmm. And just, and the cool thing about guitar too is that it has a rhythm, at least what I do, which is acoustic uh, guitar mainly. You've got, chords and a rhythm so it's self-contained in a way that drives you to want to sing at least for me and i i love acoustic music i love when pink floyd got acoustic for example or led zeppelin their folksy side but i also love bands like you know csny and and other uh, artists that um have done acoustic music or even like bands like kansas like dust in the wind that was an inspiration for the song too far gone mm-hmm. that kind of finger picking style and violin of course joe denison's on it and he plays with kansas uh now and um but i just it kind of um like to me also like keyboards i mean apart from like an intimate piano thing keyboards tend to be grandiose which i like and then acoustic guitar tends to be more intimate to me a little more storytelling so i have both sides of me musically that i like to express and it gives me that dynamic you know to be able to go between the two of them most okay. of them. i want to apologize if my listeners or viewers hear some jet airplane sounds i i live near an airport they're, they're practicing for an air show <laughs> i didn't know didn't know about that uh when i set this up but uh they're starting to practice it sounds like so if you hear a little bit of that i apologize Chose the one filled with ache. Now you're lost in nowhere land. Can't see home from where you stand. Left to face your own device. You went against some sound advice. Underneath the shell that's hollow. It's hard to swallow Looking ahead Endless lines Paved across The heartland mines Too far gone Too far gone uh, Dave, tell me about the you, you talked a little bit about some of the folks Who played on this record with you uh, how did you go about selecting the musicians that you chose? 
Well, in this case, uh, as I said, there was uh, there were tracks recorded over decades. So uh, some of it was based on who I was, you know, around at the time. So from L.A., you know, some of the people I mentioned, uh, a guy named Gene Siegel, who I co-wrote uh, Not Coming Down for ended up on Sound of Context album. Actually, that demo with him singing is on the box set. Uh, it's a good example. Oh. That's on that would have ended up on this album, by the way, because that was a story about Kevin Gilbert. And it would have been, let's say, on volume two. I'm not going to put it on volume two, but um, although there's a there's a sister song to it, actually, that probably will be on volume two or three. Uh, that was the song before Not Coming Down that was in 6-8. And it was a, li- a little different. And I wrote a different song. So that it's in the same key and has some similarities. And and yeah, there's a few demos that hint at it. Cause, so one of the demos that I inclu- I'm including in the box set was like a it's called the heartland suite and it was like this kind of like the who tommy or one of these things where i i was going to open the album with little sections of of the songs which is kind of i like that idea and it was sort of moody blues ish as well it was like mm, you're like uh days of future past mm-hmm. and i think not coming down bits are even in that so that's that's in there but anyway um yeah like uh you know Going from then to now, I have my prog family or my just my musical family of people that I like to work with. Fernando Perdomo, mm-hmm. Durga McBroom, Lorelai McBroom, also Emily Lynn from uh who was sang on Solitude on New World. She sings, sings with the Australian Pink Floyd. Uh so I went a little deluxe with the backing vocals. Um Matt Dorsey, my bandmate in Sound of Contact. Uh one of the cool things, one of the cool things about sound of contact there's many cool things about it i really love those guys and i love what we did uh matt and kelly are really talented they play bass and guitar on that album but matt's such a great bass player that some people either forget or don't know that he also played guitar on that record and he's he's creative and different so um i had him play some guitar on this album as well as bass and same thing with Fernando. Guy is like a great guitar player and yet one of my favorite bass players. And so you can't lose having Fern take a crack at bass and it's like he'll always do something cool. So those guys. And then I have the Montre Vega rhythm section on a couple tracks, um, Stuart Fletcher and Alice Cromer T, uh, because we recorded those during the Montre Vega sessions. I, I, you know, we flew them over from York to uh, Miami back then and we had a blast. We recorded all the songs for The Illusion's Reckoning, and then we had extra time. So, you know, it's like not every day that you have somebody flying internationally to do a session. So we were productive. Back to One and Worlds Apart, we recorded them with them. And um, we have Elliot Randall from Steely Dan guesting on a song. That's, that's new. Um, and the thing with Elliot is, you know, look, I love to work with my favorite musicians when I can. Um, but it's not as, let's say, mm, gratuitous or just kind of like wish list oriented as one might think. Like, for instance, I mean, you know, I, I tend to work with people I know. So I actually know Elliot. Um, and he's come to our shows and he's really supportive. And I've, I've always wanted to work with him. Another person I was going to ask who I know is Don Felder. I was going to ask him to play on Dirty Girl, but Fernando did such a good job with the solo. I was like, well, we don't need it. But 
Don owes me a favor because I helped him on one of his albums with with some drum sounds. Uh, you know, if he remembers, I, I was like, like taking a little too long to redeem the favor because it was like, <laughs> well, that would have been cool if he played on Dirty Girl because he had a hit with Bad Girls. So it was like, oh, I didn't know. I was just thinking position. <laughs> it it, it would have fit suit him well. I, I may still try to do it at some point if it fits. It's all about if it fits. But um, but I was gonna say like I don't I know Elliot. Elliot played on like um, Can't Buy a Thrill and uh, other early Steely Dan albums. Love those records. Danny Diaz and Skunk Baxter was two of the other guitar players. Um, I don't know them. And I could probably reach out to them. I sh- maybe should have, but at a certain point, I'm just kind of like, well, you know, uh, it's just a little closer to home. I, 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 It's like if it falls within the range of like, all right, either... Either I know them or someone I'm working with works with them or knows them. You know, like when we worked with Simon Phillips, my friend Eric Norlander had worked with them. Mm-hmm. And so I, I mentioned Eric and that's because Nick Virgilio wasn't available. And I was like, well, who can I get? Simon Phillips. Actually, Nick was like, when he heard the album, he's like, is that Simon Phillips? Is he everyone? We all love Simon Phillips. I'm like, yeah. It's like, wait, so you couldn't get me and you got Simon Phillips? And I'm like, <laughs> like you know, I just. So that I didn't never met him. Actually, I met him years later on the cruise, one of the cruises, and uh, uh, I think it was on the Blue Cruise. And then Fernando was there, and like Fernando kind of introduced me and said, "Simon, this is Dave. You played on his record. We played together." <laughs> and he's like, "Oh, really?" And, and then we played it for him because he, I don't think he ever heard how it came out. He's like, "Oh, this is really good." And that was a great moment. But anyway, um, so th- there's musicians like that where you know it's one degree away. Uh, but, uh, since I, and Denny Diaz, I mean, probably would have been, he, so he played this electric sitar solo on do it again. And back to one is a little bit of a tip of the hat to songs like that. And so I had Fernando play an electric sitar, which is very rare to hear, especially distorted like that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, no one ever does that. Let's do it. You know, let's do it again. Um, and (laughs) You know, so there, I, I probably forget. Well, Joe Denon's on. I mean, there's so many different musicians, but the way that I approach it is just, you know, like a casting director. It's like, well, who who would fit for this song, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and maybe even like differences between what they would do creatively versus following any directions you know some people are like really good at like you ask them to do something specific and they do it and then some people are like well they're probably not going to do exactly what you asked but they're going to still do something creative and good mm-hmm. uh, and uh and then some people are really fast like fernando not only does he, he sometimes follows my directions sometimes he does his own thing but if he does his own thing it's because he heard something and and, and it's usually it's maybe better than what i had in mind or whatever it's diff- certainly different in and useful uh but he's also fast he loves playing with me and is so respectful and so like a workaholic anyway that he'll turn around a track within 24 hours and i love that i mean it no wonder he gets hired a lot because it's kind of like and and it's good you know some people can like do it fast and it's not good that's that's no good you got to take time to get it right or make it great but just the fact that he prioritizes it and he's just excited. His energy is always positive. I love that. So that's, that's one of the main reasons why I work with Fernando so much is that it's just like, I know I can rely on him to like be passionate about it and fast and, you know, 
and just keep the flow going. Whereas, you know, it, it can be like a little bit like coitus interruptus. If you send it to a track to someone, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And like weeks go by and you're like, you know, I just lost the momentum of, of, of this where I was like, oh, can you do the guitar solo? And like, oh yeah, man. And like, th that's important because there is a danger and this album is proof that stuff can be put on the back burner or it kind of loses its momentum and years could go by. You have to really take the bull by the horns and do these things. It's a lot of work to make an album. And so, you know, it's good to have a deadline. I actually use big festival uh, bookings and the cruise, cruise of the edge mm -hmm. as milestone landmarks or whatever for like goals to set like all right like volume two my has to be out before cruise to the edge because cruise to the edge is my opportunity thank you to them for promoting an album just like prog stock was mm -hmm. it's like and to do it live and whatever so it's just like all right you know i don't tour the world i don't have all those other uh benefits of promotion right you gotta but, maximize your opportunities yeah yeah okay Genevieve, a mystical girl No one really knows A rare kind in this world And here's how the legend goes She lived by the sea And men came there to please She lured them in with song Let's talk a little bit about the music on this thing. Uh, you, you mentioned True Story is kind of a, the bookend, True Story Part 1 and 2. And I think it's funny because you mentioned classic rock. To me, a lot of this album, the way that it's uh, acoustically driven, a lot of it's very Americana. Not all of it, but I think there's a lot of Americana influence in this throughout. And you talked about America and, and CSNMY and that kind of thing. And you brought up some some of the bands and some of the influences that I actually wrote down. We, we talked about Pink Floyd. I think even some of your vocals kind of emulate what David Gilmore was doing on the Division Bell to some extent. It sounds like I don't know if it was intentional, but I think it it has that kind of sound to it. And uh, and also on his um, on an island uh, solo album a little bit. And I think Eye of the Storm. That's one of those those songs that stuck out to me. It's a little bit Floydy, maybe a little bit somewhere between Pink Floyd and Alan Parsons. And um, that one is, it's a, it's a great, I guess, first proper track. Cause you know, you get the true story is kind of an intro piece. Um, is, is this a linear story? Is are you telling the story in a, in a linear way or are you just kind of bouncing around? No, the original intro to the album was this heartland suite. There was like pieces of the songs and then it went into dreaming in LA and um and then i was going to just get rid of the suite and start with dreaming in la and a friend of mine who was the associate producer on the album who kind of was like my like i i'm self-produced but i realized on the second album i'm sorry the previous album this album that it's good to have one 
trusted second pair of ears just to bounce things off of mostly for the mixes and like do you hear this should this be louder or quiet but like started to get a little bit more into why don't you do this and it's actually so his name's shimon spiegel and he suggested he's like you can't start with dreaming in la and I'm like but that's the beginning of the, you know like there's two things that happen that make me decide to consider leaving la one is the breakup which is the song genevieve you know, where we talk about the girl and then, it, you know, and the other is this idea, which we didn't talk about, but just briefly, um, L.A. being this place where entertainment people go to try to make it, you know, and let's say in the music world, I mean, actors and, you know, all sorts of people. But but let's say in the music world um, as a music artist, you know, if you're the kind of person who, let's say, is uh, the kind of musician who is for hire, you know, like a session musician. It's a great place to be because that's where a lot of the action is, you know, or London or, or, or New York, or, you know, or Nashville. Um, so it makes a lot of sense. If you're a songwriter and you're a music artist, it may or may not. I was questioning that because I thought, man, there's so much going on. There's so much temptation and there's so much anxiety. There's so many people that are dying to just be famous at all costs. And I'm like, I don't want to be that. That's why it's, I don't want to be, you know, waiting for fortune and fame. I'm not there to try to make it. I don't need to be famous. I just need to be who I want to be, which is a music artist and create it. So I'm like, you can create it anywhere. Actually, once you have the goods, once you have the material, then you can go to LA or anywhere and shop your deal or whatever. But you can't just be waiting around or like, and I kept, you know, so that was the impetus for the drive between the breakup and that. I was like, maybe I don't need to live in LA. And this was at a time before the internet where you could really be anywhere. This was just the hint of maybe you can be anywhere. And my family was in Florida and New York. So I drove to Florida and New York and I was testing the waters for, you know, the late nineties to see, I kept going back and forth anyway. So it was going to start, but, but Shimon was like objective about it. He's like, your fans are going to flip out. If you go full Tom Petty, John Cougar Mellencamp as your first song. Like, and and so I, the song was like fourth or fifth song. It's like, can, can't you just bring that forward? I'm like, but it's out of contest. And, like, and then it kind of occurred to me that it could be useful along with True Story, which is a new song about the album, right about writing the album as a bookend. Because one of the things that was difficult about this is how to have a beginning and an end knowing it's volume one. Uh, so it's like, it's not going to end anyway. There's so many other things that happened on that original drive. And then on the second drive later on that I'm like, all right, so I have to, I can't have it be a hundred percent linear. We're going to do almost like where a movie has flashbacks and different things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's kind of the, if you look at it like this, if, for those who care, <laughs> uh, the two songs are sort of now ish and kind of looking back retrospect and then once we get to dreaming in la now we're back in the 90s and we're going linear from there up until actually up until we get to the eye reprise and the end the book ends. so actually okay long story short i had thought about this first one to ask <laughs> the book ends are now and the middle section is linear there you go that's a short answer yeah. okay Dreaming in L.A., you, you mentioned this one already. That's kind of where you envisioned the, the story starting. It, you mentioned this band, and I wrote this down. Some musical DNA shared in the verses with Bad Company Shooting Star. But it sounds a little bit more like something 
like Kevin Gilbert would do, then if, if that makes sense, it's it, there has there is some some similarity there, but it sounds more like something Kevin might have written. Yeah, I mean, Kevin is a huge influence on this album, especially because at the time I was in his band and it was just sort of like becoming part of my DNA in a way. And, you know, for, for many years, I've in different moments where it was appropriate, um, like songs like My Old Friend and certain moments, um, <clears throat> I do, I, I think about that actually, like what would Kevin do? Because Kevin, I hold him to such a high standard of like, well, he would be clever. He would say that in a different way. Or he would be funny or he'd break the fourth wall. He would, he would just, uh, you know, and I'm like, I admire that. I like that. And I aspire to be able to do things that you don't often hear, like, like something comedy, something, something funny, you know, in a song that isn't cheesy. And you know who else was really good at that? And I miss him is I never met him, but is Tom Petty. The two biggest inspirations for Dreaming in LA would be Kevin and also, uh, oh, and Hendrix too, though, actually. I mean, the, the chorus is a bit Hendrix. But uh, but Tom Petty, like Into the Great Wide Open, that song, which yeah, is a yeah, fun you hear story about, you know, rock star. And of course, Shaming of the True is another story about a rock star who's just, you know, the rise and fall. And so these made-up characters, Tommy and Sheila, are like, they're not really part of the whole story. They're just random examples of two people who are like, let's say, maybe talentless posers who just just want fame they, they're there in la just to kind of get a little of the 15 minutes of fame yeah. and then once they get it they actually get it they blow it you know tommy with his cocaine and, and sheila with the whatever mouthing off and gets kicked out and then they're still waiting for more they're just hanging out until they finally give up and so um but that kind of storytelling you know, is definitely Kevin influenced and, and Tom Petty and artists like that. Yeah. Even, even John Cougar, Mellencamp to some extent, a little, you know, mm-hmm. it's my own version of that. song back to one uh i noticed you you talked you had a line in there about uh leaving the home by the sea and to me i know your genesis background was that an intentional uh tribute to genesis there yeah i put little easter eggs in my albums yeah. there's even more genesis yeah. well, we'll, uh, <laughs> well i i know in uh, when the heart sinks like a stone obviously you you've you've plucked a little Kevin Gilbert in there in the leaving Miss Broadway stuff. Um, and it's got, that song has that vibe to it. Um, what was the, did, how did that kind of come about? You have this, uh, you have this history with Kevin. This is a song that you've 
played with Kevin uh, or Miss Broadway anyway. And this song has a similar vibe. Were you just trying to kind of pay tribute to him a little bit? Yeah. I mean, essentially, in fact, the song is credited co-written with him. And I asked the estate, you know, about that to make sure, you know, just to say, hey, you know, why don't I just because the thing is, is um, there were there were two reasons for that. One is the original song. I contributed some of the music to it. So we kind of wrote that all together as a band and uh, particularly the Mellotron flute part. And, and I always liked that. And it didn't end up on an album apart from the live version. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways at the time, I was like, well, let me do something with that flute part that I came up with. There's like a hook. And so it started there back then. It was a song called Heart of Stone. I th- think i do include that as a demo so that with gene singing it it's not not particularly great but it it, and at the time it was but anyway um i there's another one of those songs that uh that went through a lot of revisions before it became um when the heart sinks like a stone um and uh at the end i really do in the tag at the end uh, another miss broadway you know and i sing the song that's why he's credited mm-hmm. like that like all right i'm actually playing uh leaving miss broadway um adding a little twist is another miss broadway so that was we talked about it earlier so i won't go into the details of it but basically she was a lot like cheryl yeah she's another broadway that song you know leaving miss broadway or miss broadway was about cheryl it was kevin's bitterness you know and in his own you know, way of, of telling the tale. Yeah. Uh, and um, so I, it was at the time, the parallel of, you know, this idea of someone in a singer in the music industry leaving, you know, putting on a show, putting on like an acting, an act for you, and then leaving you in the dust. And that's, you know, leaving Miss Broadway or them leaving you is that had that similar. I mean, I was, I actually left Genevieve in the sense that but she pushed me out the door, and that's why there's that song "Pushed Me Out." But anyway, <laughs> and that's a, and that's a very yesy song. Spare the talk without the same bullshit. Skip the beat around the bush. Let me through the door, then out the back. Tension building up, and then you just pushed me out. Yeah, that one was originally just an instrumental. Again, the demo is on the box in the box set, completely different, kind of almost King Crimson-ish, actually, as an instrumental. Mm-hmm. And then I just had this idea, a sort of gentle giant, yes, of of singing these words. And 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 again, there's some comedy in there, the whole bit about namaste. She used to say that all the time. Like when she get into trouble, you you know, she would use that as like a get out of jail free card. You're like, you're referring with that guy. Namaste. Namaste. Okay. <laughs> hey, you know, using that as a front. But um, but yeah, um I I had Durga McBroom sing like the high John Anderson type parts, uh, which was different because she's usually doing something Floydy since she sang with Pink Floyd, you know, oohs and ahs and stuff. And so she was loving it, uh, you know, to do something different like that. And then Matt Dorsey uh, played guitar on that. So he's doing kind of a Steve Howish sort of thing. And, I, and then mm. once he did that, I was like, well, let me play an RMI uh, like Rick Wakeman did on Fragile. 
I love fragile. So um, it's definitely got a bit of a fragile vibe. Yeah, for sure. I, I agree 100%. The, uh, uh, the cool thing about Matt is I didn't really know Matt very well. I knew he had been on Sound of Contact. I didn't really know his work that well, but it's amazing how much versatility he has as an artist because I've I've enjoyed his recent solo album that he put out. And I got to see him finally. He played with Project uh, locally here um, about a year ago, I guess, and uh, uh, really was impressive. Yeah, he's very talented. And I like working with musicians who are multi-instrumentalists. Uh, it just, uh, there's so many possibilities, you know, and, and uh, in this case, it was great working with Matt in new ways. Uh, like, for instance, the song like that and a few other cases, maybe some songs that are on the next volume. I was a little more open-minded. Sometimes I'm not as open-minded as I think I am. Cause I'm sort of, I have a vision and I'm like, please do this in this box, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then within that box, be creative. Um, whereas rarely do I say to a musician, Hey, yeah, uh, play whatever comes to mind, you know, which ironically I did for Stephen Wilson. He, he had given me an opportunity to do some stuff for his album, Grace for Drowning. And, I did all sorts of stuff. I sent some keyboards, guitar effects and noises and all sorts of things. And he didn't use it all, but um, he used like half of it. And the other half I used on Dimension Art because that was at the same time. But uh, so I, I'm a hypocrite. We're all hypocrites. Um, <laughs> uh, in that, you know, like I enjoyed being get that gave, given that opportunity. I think probably most musicians do and I should do it more. I think I will. Cause so I said to Matt with push me out since it was an instrumental and now it's a vocal song. I'm like, I have, I don't know what I'm going to do for the rest. Do whatever comes to mind and that and a couple other tunes. And so he started playing percussion and like he did one thing on one song that was not released on this album, probably, probably next album where he took like a bag of sticks and threw it into a basket. And that was a percussion sound. And I was like, what is that sound? I wasn't even sure if I liked it. And then when he told me, then I loved it. I'm like, what? You did that? <laughs> like, okay, that's cool. And I'm like, all right. So I'm seeing other sides of Matt that I hadn't seen before. But, um, you know, so it, it was a lot of fun uh, doing that where we just kind of had a little more freedom to experiment, which, you know, I have to say, in all honesty, um, I it's a double-edged sword to have like a preconceived vision and idea for something on the one hand it's like look you've got the foundation so you have you a little bit of security knowing that you can see how the songs can end up and and got some references like these other bands and other types of songs so it's like oh yeah it's kind of like this and that what well, we love all that stuff right or people do like okay so it should fit right in there you know with its own angle but not like totally but then at the sacrifice of something completely new something completely out of the you know like out of out there and i do enjoy that too you know like i love being like let's just do whatever you know and actually with sound of contact there was a few tracks that we did that like Omega Point just came out of the blue. And I, I so I want to do that more. But that said, these volumes are like kind of prepaved, uh, so to speak.
let's talk about i don't want to get into every song because i want to be respectful of your time but one of the songs i want to talk about is worlds apart because i think and it may change tomorrow it may change the day after for now i think this might be my favorite track on the album it's a very floydy song uh and i think this is uh this is more probably closer to what i expected from this album rather than all of the acoustic guitar but i, I mean I should have known right from the get-go. You're talking about going across country with electric or with an acoustic guitar. Uh, I should have known there would have been more acoustic guitar on it. But this, to me, um, stands out after after the first. I don't know what I've had about a half a dozen listens. Tell me a little bit about this song. Well, um, the song is, uh, in terms of the timeline of the story, is about you know about like you know a day or two out in the journey, and I had second thoughts about like maybe i overreacted or maybe i should have talked about this because like i didn't catch her cheating i just suspected it and but it was obvious it was just sort of like like she was done with me and wanted to move on and with this record company guy and schmooze him and you know i could just tell you you know in fact if anything i was probably you know dim and clueless about like the signs and like you know like finally it was like all right she's pushing me out here Mm -hmm. but uh, you know i still was like all right, let me, let me just call, you know? So I called and she had disconnected her landline, which is our landline, which is a real like, you know, F yeah. you. Yeah. And so but, you even had the sample of that, that, that recording we used to hear this, this number's no longer in service kind of thing going on. Yeah, so at the time, I mean, like later on, because that actually happened, and then later on when I was writing songs, so this wasn't done on the trip itself, but when I was back in a studio, I was thinking about that moment, and I sampled the tones, do do do, and I wrote the song not with a keyboard, but with its with a normal keyboard sound, but with those tones, I put it across the keyboard and wrote a song with the tones, and it was my melodramatic, um, poetic way of of. And using those samples as a way of like, this is all I have left of her, and I'm going to write a song with it. So it just kind of had like a thing, a meaning. It wasn't just like, oh, Pink Floyd likes to use telephone calls and things. Yeah. Oh, it wasn't like that. But I knew, obviously, that you know, this is very Floyd. But I love Pink Floyd. so. But it had a meaning. It was just kind of like, you know, we're sorry. And, and especially like the, the full thing was, we're sorry. This number's been disconnected. Please try again. Yeah. And I, th- I thought like, we're sorry try again you know what I mean? kind yeah. of like well I, and i love the i love the way you kind of use the pieces of it distort it a bit it kind of gets into your mindset what you must have been thinking at that time yeah good i'm glad because that is exactly it it's sort of just like this all right you know like there's no going back vibe of just you know you got to keep moving and that, that that's a, a common theme and too far gone keep moving on and mm-hmm. but there's you know sometimes it's like you get a sign and this was a very clear sign it's like didn't want to talk so this is it and um you know it's a sad song um but it, it's um you know it kind of anchors the album in in the sense that it's like the mi- sort of the middle of the album and it is that point of no return it was like you know, and it, and it sets up 
some of the emotion of Man of Calm and the other songs after it and, and even further along the line, volume two, to where it's like, are we really doing this? Yeah, we're really doing this. Like at first you're like, we're doing this. We're, we're going on the road. We're going to just, you know, and then like you get to that point, maybe, maybe I'll turn back. That's the point where I might. And after that, I don't have any feelings of turning back. So it's yeah. like a pivot point. Yeah. That's, that's the, 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 the breaking point where you, uh, you're past that mythical point of no return. Yeah. Dave, when uh, when somebody listens to this album all the way through, what do you kind of hope they take away from that experience? I mean, everybody's different, you know, so um, some people really get into the story and the lyrics. Other people just like nice music to listen to. So I, I it's up to them, really. I just, you know, I offer it in layers. I offer my music in layers in the sense that I care about and love every aspect of songwriting, playing, production, mixing, all of it. And so I put a lot into it. Uh, and, and that's, you know, it's crafting what I can do with it so that it reaches everybody from the casual listener to one who's really into it and, and is going to, you know, uh, ideally listen to it from start to finish. Maybe that's one hope is that, you know, obviously like with the eye, one of the, the EP, I didn't have the segues. So the songs seamlessly go in from one to the next with sound effects and things that kind of make it seem cinematic. And on the eye, it, they're standalone. It's a little more like a collection of singles, even though they're not edited though, at least they're the full length, but still, mm -hmm. uh, but the album is meant to be heard from start to finish so that you feel you're on the trip with me. That would be the best result is that you felt like you connected with it as a listener and could, you know, just like you're on the journey with the artist and it bring you in a little more. It's my most personal album. So it's, it's, it, I have a, there's a vulnerability there. Uh, whereas, you know, a lot of my albums are actually personal, but I'm hiding behind, you know, sci-fi concepts and this and that, but you could actually say, oh yeah, no, that song is actually about, this but um or i could say but this is you know more just like um personal and accessible and relatable because you know a lot of us have been through breakups you know in our lives and, sure. and situations where maybe we would have wanted to just get in a car and drive but we couldn't because we had a job and you couldn't just take a leave or whatever it is and so i did it you know i i went through these adventures and I have a story to tell on these. And, but so ideally, people getting something out of the story. But at the end of the day, um, it's also just music, you know. And so if people are humming it, 
you know, or they listen to it while they're working out or they're driving to work like they do, uh, you know, and they're enjoying it. That's all. That's what matters to me the most, you know, mm-hmm. not me and what I get out of it or people, you know, telling me positive things. And I mean, I like to hear that. It's great about me and the musicians I work with. We all love that. But I think what's more important than that is that, you know, my job was to create it. And the goal is to move people. It's for people to get something out of it. And it's my way of putting back into the world something that I got out of music myself. It's why I wanted to do it is because I'm like, this is great. This, you know, albums are awesome. I love my albums that, that I have bought. And uh, they were the soundtrack of my summers and different things for me. So I'm like, we need to create more of this fuel, you know? So that's that's how I see that. Got it. Where is the best place for someone to buy Heartland Minds Volume 1? Probably Bandcamp, my my Bandcamp, sonicelements.bandcamp.com. You can access that from davekersner.com. But if you use iTunes, the full album is on iTunes, uh, Amazon. I think only those two, though. Um, I'm also going to, the CD is coming out. Um, I'm just waiting for it to arrive from the record plant. Um, and, uh, will be available around the world through various distributors like just for kicks, uh, maybe burning shed and the UK and some others. Um, I'm going to try to reach out to some more distributors to get it in more places. Uh, cause I do get asked that a lot. However, uh, we do ship internationally from Miami. Okay. And you mentioned, um, you mentioned the, the box set. What all do you get in the box set? The, I'm, I'm weird with box sets for better or worse. I think, mostly for the better for people but um in the sense that because uh, even if i'm on a label sometimes i do an album through a, in, in cooperation with the label uh like static for instance um and breakdown but uh, we're with cherry red but i uh when i'm definitely like not on a label i allow myself to do things like add to a box set before it's out because I'm, I'm doing a pre-order the pre-order it's more expensive item you know i have box sets that are anywhere from 75 to 250 bucks but um the uh so anyway to answer your question the big box set that's 250 first it came with your name in the credits because it was like a backer's box set i always do that um and a lot of people go for that because they, they know that they're supporting the artist they're really making a huge impact on the funds um to do it and um and then they get their name in memorialized in in the booklet and everything uh, in the pdf so there's that but um it's too late to have the name put in because it's already off the press but i've added things to it so um right now it's five discs uh which include so the main album you get the i on cd as well um the ep which is a little different um and then you get um a uh so that there's a three disc version that comes with a bonus disc of outtakes demos and uh, alternate versions like acoustic versions and stuff like that and then it also comes with a blu-ray that has a surround sound mix of the album um and then the box set comes with um those three plus the eye plus an additional disc and i might even include another disc it depends I, i'm still compiling everything and i found some demos that i didn't know i had so i might even make a whole other disc of demos or something like that but it's either five or six discs but it's advertised as, it was advertised originally at four and, I <laughs> add, and then i might add a sixth 
Yeah. Uh, so it's, but it comes with extra swag, um, a keychain, which is appropriate. So in Heartland Mines, keychain yeah. driving and um, a postcard, signed postcard. They all come with uh, backstage passes and collect collectible items. You know. Okay. And let me know what you're up to next, because we talked about this. Obviously, you've, this music's in your rearview mirror, not no pun intended. And, uh, you know, you've 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 got to get out and, and play some of it. But what's next for Dave Kersner? Well, we are going to finish finally uh, the Genesis stuff, including the landmines down on Broadway. Um, it's the 50th anniversary next year. So, you know, it has to come out next year, finally, after so many years um which is a tribute album that we're doing with francis dunnery and other artists nick tubergilio and um and then a bigger thing which is more genesis tribute stuff um volume two heartland minds volume two is coming out i've been working on in continuum's third record uh slowly here and there um i don't know probably come out sometime maybe next year uh maybe um and then um you know, maybe, and this is really a stretch, but uh, just to say, um, you know, uh, I have been talking with Simon Collins and Matt Dorsey and Kelly Nordstrom about possibly doing something. Um, so the the thought is there, the desire is there, I believe, but um, the how, when, who, what, all that, you know, I don't know, but. Um, it's 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 one of those things that you know sound of contact uh, thing. It's uh, the fans have told us that they would love it, and we would as well. Um, but knowing what we went through together, you know how realistic it is, and how you know how we how we'd be able to do it is up in the air. But I'm certainly open to it, and um, could be good. So either way, I am going to collaborate with Matt Dorsey uh more mm -hmm. on and i'd like to do some like i said some new stuff that doesn't already have um, material but just kind of jamming together and you know or just writing something fresh out of nowhere um i'd like to squeeze that in um so but you know i have so many other things too it competes with you know knowing it's like bird in the hand versus two in the bush i have another thing that was like a yes type of thing, which I was going to try to pitch to Arc of Life, but it's a bit more like vintage yes, like old yes, like even not just fragile, but like the yes album or even Peter Banks era that yeah. I deal with with uh, Fernando. And that material is great. It's just sitting there. And it was going to be a side project with John Davison, but he, then he got busy writing with yes, and which is understandable. It doesn't get any better than doing yeah. yes stuff with yes. But, uh, you know, that that and squids out to see that side project uh you know at some point you know there's never a shortage and i'm grateful for that anyway there's always something to work on and that's what i love to do so sounds good well the album is called heart land minds volume one dave kersner's the artist dave thank you so much for telling me about this record I, I think it's fantastic i wish you nothing but the most success with it thanks for telling me about it and uh it was great catching up with you likewise michael thank you man Michael's Record Collection is hosted and produced by Michael Citro. Logo graphic courtesy of Jerry Cutchins. Follow Michael's Record Collection on social media, at Mike's Records on Twitter, and Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. If you like what you hear, 
You can support the show through our Patreon at patreon.com slash michaelsrecordcollection. For the free newsletter version, go to substack.com and just type Michael's Record Collection into the search bar. Thanks for listening.